From the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up with Public Health Pandemic Response. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Steve Rains and Dr. Laura Gronwald. Steve Rains is Professor of Communication at the University of Arizona. He also holds appointments at the Department of Psychology and the Arizona Cancer Center. His research is situated in the general areas of communication and technology, health communication, and social influence. Laura Gronwald is a lecturer at the University of Arizona Mellon Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health. Dr. Gronwald's professional career has involved working in both academia and community settings with a focus on using critical and empathetic dialogue to improve individuals and communities. I'd like to start by asking you both your thoughts on the challenges public health messaging faces when encouraging the public to adopt social distancing and other efforts aimed at reducing SARS-CoV-2 transmission. One of the things I think about is that public health professionals have multiple audiences. And so I think one way to think about it is the audience as the, the average member of the lay public. And so from that perspective, the goal is to, or the challenge is to connect what we're doing with social distancing with something that matters to them. And everyone, my guess would be, has a loved one who's probably in an at-risk category. Because you know, if you think about older adults and, and grandparents or our parents, um, you know, probably fall into that, the older age brackets where um, the implications of COVID-19 are much more significant and dangerous. And so finding a way to connect that in very basic language and, and make people see why it's not you that we're worried about, we're worried about the people whom you might infect. And so that's one big challenge I see. I think the other thing I see is public health professionals oftentimes deal with the media and the media members don't have the same job as they do. What I mean by that is they're bringing sort of different expectations and goals to those interviews when they're, they're asked for comment or uh, to reflect on the state of the situation. And so I think it's really important for public health professionals to really have a clear sense of what they wanna accomplish in those interviews. Because ultimately their goal is to get to the public. And so in order to do that, they have to think very strategically about how they uh, manage those interactions. So if we can bring this back to sort of uh, getting people to embrace social distancing more, it might be talking to the media in more uh, productive ways about social distancing or uh, continuing to mention why we social distance, not just the burden it causes or right now we're seeing all the focus on, I saw an article today about uh, in Michigan, people stormed the, the state capitol, right? Because they're resisting social distancing or at least the stay at home measures. And so connecting that with the reason we're doing it and the stakes if we don't is one, one avenue we have to pursue. Yeah, my family actually all lives in Michigan and I think some of them have some questions about the what they see as the severity of some of the measures. And so I think in terms of messaging, you know, it's important to do what, what Steve's talking about, which is, you know, to make that connection so if I'm a young person and I'm far away from my grandparents, you know, I need to be thinking about them, but sort of transposing that care to my own community where I'm living right now. So if I'm a college student from Chicago and I'm here because I have an apartment and I've chosen to not go back to Chicago, then protecting the people who are my grandparents' age here is where my care should be directed. And, and I think we have a hard time sometimes as human beings, transferring that care from one community to another. You know, we take such pride in, in our communities and, and 
that can be great, but it, that can also lead to a lot of segmentation, a lot of tribalism. And I think that kind of tribalism that's really been pretty strong in this country for the last 15 or 20 years, and you know, in the last five years, even more so, I think it's hard to get people to sort of care about another tribe. And there's a, a there's you know some communication research around how we actually have a harder time feeling affection and empathy for people that we see outside of our tribe. And so, what does that mean for for public health if I don't care about you in the same way or empathize with you because you're not in what I perceive as my in group? If you're in the, my quote unquote out group then maybe I don't think it's important to social distance. The messaging, I don't think it can be the exact same message for every different age demographic. And I think, Steve, you were getting at that too, uh, because what's going to resonate with, you know, again, that 20 or 22-year-old college student is going to be different than what resonates for a parent of a young child versus a grandparent. Yeah, I think we have to make it meaningful. So absolutely different messages for different people, and we have to connect with people I think the community angle is a very important one. The other one I just don't hear enough of, I would like to hear more of, is arguments for social distancing. And there, there's some pretty simple ones out there, right? Like, for example, th this comparison with the flu keeps coming up over and over and over again. And I think that what keeps getting forgotten about the flu is that there's a vaccine. If people are at risk, they can do something to mitigate that risk by getting the vaccine. But there's no vaccine for this. And so people can't take the same sort of precautions. And so by us not engaging in social distancing, we're putting them at risk in ways that we're not with the flu. And so I think the degree to which we can come up with novel arguments for social distancing to sort of get people why we're, or make, make it click why we're doing it, are going to be important. The other thing we're going to need to do is be uh, ready to refute counter arguments against social distancing. We're already hearing them right now, right? It, it, we're, we're endangering the economy. We're limiting people's Liberty. Liberty, that's the word I was looking for. So we're li uh, limiting liberty and taking away freedoms. And so those are things that are, you know, those are two touchy subjects right there. And I think that in, in order to convince people that social distancing is the way to go, we're going to have to address those in some kind of a way. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think the, the language of liberty and freedom is, you know, that brings us right back to the sort of foundational principles of our nation. And, and this conflict between the individual and the community has really been a conflict that is baked into what it means to be a person living in the United States of America, whether you're a citizen or not. And, you know, I think liberty has always been a privilege that hasn't been accessible to all. Um, although, our rhetoric says that it is accessible to all. And so I think we're seeing that play out in some of these protests. And, and so from a public health perspective, really talking about community and, and finding a way to do that and, and the, the richness of what we get from community, that seems like that's a worthwhile argument to start making. But it does force people to stop prioritizing themselves as individuals and themselves alone. And we don't like doing that because most of the time we're told that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're told that we get that message constantly and that validation constantly. So it is kind of a hard sell to encourage people to not think of themselves first. Yeah, and some of the work I've done is on a topic called psychological reactance. And the basic premise is this, that 
people really value their personal freedoms. And when our freedoms are threatened, we don't like it. And so what we oftentimes do is we engage in the very behavior that's restricted. And so there's been some arguments like warning labels, for example. Uh, warning labels with uh, cigarettes or alcohol or something like that might actually encourage alcohol mm. consumption among some groups because their freedom is being threatened. And so the way people restore that freedom is enacting it. You tell me I can't drink, well, I'm going to drink more. I'm going to show you. And I think we have the danger of the same kind of thing happening here with social distancing by saying you must stay home, um, your store must stay closed. That makes people feel that same kind of state of reactance. And the only way we can quell that is by giving them reasons. So there are some instances in which we can reduce people's free freedoms, but they don't become reactive. And what that involves is, is them feeling like that restriction is uh, reasonable or that restriction is in some way justified. So for example, you know, nobody ever complains about not being able to, to yell fire in a crowded theater. Everyone kind of gets that, okay, that's probably a common good that we shouldn't be able to do that. I'll give away my freedom of speech right in that specific context just because you know, I, want to be, I don't want a mad crowd rushing out of the movie theater. So we need to connect with them on some way here and community is a great way. I think another way to do it would be to say that, look, either we do this now for a little bit or we do this again, this social distancing again, and working from home again, or staying home again in the next couple of months, and then a couple of months after that, and then a couple of months after that. So we can either take it all up front in terms of the, the losses to, to business and industry and our personal paychecks, or we can eke it out and end up doing that in much larger quantities over the next year or two until the vaccines develop. I think part of what's complicated that which I think that's a, a terrific idea, like take you know to sort of like give ourselves the dose of uh, the quote unquote dose of social distancing and commit to that. But I think it's hard for people to conceptualize over the long run, you know. And and the media has not helped by sharing these messages that we're going to be getting back by Easter, we're going to be getting back by such and such a date, you know. I think we as human beings walking around, like we would love to have that information, but we just don't. And that's part of what's complicating things. I think everyone's just walking around sort of in that reactive part of their brain, just to build on that reactive idea that you were talking about, Steve, you know, that, that lizard primal part of our brain. Like, I think we're all there and we can't get out of it. And so how can we help people get into that higher order thinking with good reasons and with, I think, reasonable plans? I think trying to lay out some actionable steps that, that people can do, because I think people do need to feel like they have a little bit of control in their daily lives. And, and when we feel no control whatsoever, that's when we just feel like, well, just forget it. I'm, I'm going to go and see my neighbor. I'm going to go in, and ignore this warning label because it's not going to matter anyway. So we need to make sure we walk people back off that cliff with some actionable steps. And I think that's what the public health professional can do, and that's what makes them different than the media. The media is just sort of reporting the facts, you know, giving both sides. We don't, we're not interested in giving both sides, right? We're interested in promoting public health, which is a totally different objective. I'm not saying the media is against that, but what I am saying is they're not necessarily pursuing that same end. So I think one of the things we can do in this context is explain to people how they can engage in social distancing. And what I mean by that is not, you can stay at home, you can wash your hands, those are great. But what I mean by that is how can I manage when I'm not, I don't have a paycheck coming in? What can I do about not having a paycheck? 
And I have seen some great things I actually saw in the news. If you can't pay your pay, if you can't pay your rent today, what should you do? So the things like that, where we can help people in order to accomplish social distancing, not just in the small things like washing hands, but in the more significant things where people you know, aren't getting paid, have lost their insurance, and those kinds of things to help them so that they, they can get through this and they can actually fulfill that obligation of social distancing. And not feel like it's them alone that's being impacted because I think that's part of what social distancing does is make us feel even more alone than we, if we already feel alone, we feel even more alone. And, and you know, there's research from a lot of people, including uh, Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, has talked a lot about the loneliness epidemic that we have in the United States right now. And something like this is not going to help with that. So people do need those steps. I think like you're saying, Steve, things that people can do to help them feel that they have a little bit of control, that they are participating in and helping to mitigate this virus and also that they're not alone. Yeah, and the social isolation, I think we've not, I think that we knew about how important it is to have social relationships. There's a famous study uh, by epidemiologist Berkman and Seam, dates back to 1979. They looked at death rates over a 10-year period in Alameda, Cali, California, and they found that people who had more meaningful social connections had lower mortality rates. So the idea is these, these connections keep us alive. And this is not a new idea, but we've seemed to have forgotten about it until now. And mm -hmm. then everybody's kind of shocked back into it. It's like, oh, wait a minute, what do we do when my friends aren't around? And so there are things we can do. I mean, you hear about people doing the, 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 the virtual happy hours or FaceTiming. You know, I can tell you, even from my son, he, he, he was very much impacted that first couple of weeks before he had his class. Now he has his uh, school online every day for about an hour. And just that social interaction with his friends has made uh, such a difference in terms of his overall well-being. So the degree that, to which we can connect to others and maintain those connections in this time, I think, is really critical to helping people stay well. Yeah, and I think we, we also want to remember people who don't have the technology to do what we're doing right now and what, what do we do then and, and where can public health step in? Because right now that, I mean, it's, I think, arguable that even before this, that it was a health disparity to not have the kind of access that we have right now to talk to each other on Zoom, but it's even more so now to be able to get accurate information and to combat that kind of social isolation. The, again, Vivek Murthy has compared um, you know, having a, a, a level of loneliness as the equivalent to negative equivalent to your health is smoking something like 12 or 15 cigarettes a day. So those mortality rates, you know, that kind of isolation and, and the severe impact on our health, I think that's, again, something that people don't recognize. And as public health professionals, we can talk about that as being one of the dynamics of this virus and this whole pandemic that we can learn from and, and maybe take our message even broader. Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be for themselves. They can think about others in their, their family or their, their network who might be isolated and they just pick up the phone. I mean, it's most people, not all, but certainly a very large proportion of our society does have phones and it doesn't right. have to be a FaceTime conversation, just a good old plain, regular audio phone conversation can mean a lot to people and keeping them connected and helping to create that, that, that feeling that others care about them, which is so critical. Absolutely. There's so many conversations in the media right now about timelines and how long this is going to last. 
and I can see, you know, the fear or the worry in people's minds about not only the economy, but yeah, their mental health and all of that. How can some of the media conversations also tying into a connection that can help people telling their stories of their experience with having COVID-19 themselves or a family member or, you know, a healthcare professional seeing these on the front lines. Are those helpful? How does that all tie in? People want to know when this is going to end with good reason. And even with, with getting back to normal, I think is what people are mostly concerned about. And uncertainty is a difficult thing because not all, there are some instances where we do like uncertainty, but in this kind of case, we want certainty. And so that can be really challenging and stressful for people. And so some of the best advice I've seen, and I even take myself, is that one thing I think public health professionals can do is to advocate that people limit their time on news media related to coronavirus. So they can limit their distress they feel by simply watching less or just give themselves, I'm going to watch 15 minutes in the morning and 15 at night, or I'm going to, you know, even I've seen some news stations consolidate things into a podcast. I'm going to get a podcast and I'm just going to do that 30 minutes and that's it. So that's one thing I think they can do is they can manage their uncertainty by in some ways, you know, not avoiding, but limiting the degree to which they're exposed to this that's not going to help with the timeline. The timeline is, is just an uncertain, it's an uncertain event. It's, we just don't know. And so I'm not encouraging people to embrace uncertainty, but I am encouraging people to manage their own uncertainty. I think one of the things that's creating not only stress, but just a lot of grief for people is the loss of ritual. And we know that you know, at this time of year, we can all pretty much name a number of rituals that are, have just gone away for a lot, in a lot of cases for young people. But I know someone whose daughter had to cancel her wedding and birthday parties, you know, even those, those may seem trivial to some extent, those, those are still really important ways that we mark time and that we have our own kinds of timelines in the world. And we don't have the ability to have something concrete like that. So, you know, along with limiting exposure to media that might do nothing more than stress you out beyond a certain point. Like Steve's saying, watch a little bit, stay informed, and then move on to something else. But I think that we can, and people are actually in extremely inspiring ways, creating all these very cool rituals that they're doing online. I, um, someone that I follow on Twitter um, ended up doing his PhD defense via Zoom and so there were like 100 people that could join in his defense, including his grandfather, who's in his 80s, who never would have been able to see that moment. And so there's some things like that that are happening that I think, again, can change our culture for the positive. And I think that finding ways to, to create small rituals, whether it be phone calls, Zoom happy hours, board games on Zoom, that was one of the things that I saw reported on in the media. I, I heard that Netflix, you can set up a viewing party where you invite people to watch at the same time with you, and then you can kind of talk about it when you're watching something. So I think all of these are ways to maybe create minor personal timelines that can help us mark 
time and feel a little bit more, again, in control of our lives. Not to dwell on this point, but I think that is such a huge part of what we feel we've lost. I can control when I get up. I can control when I, you know, for most people, I can control, you know, approximately the time I go to work. I can control what I do on my days off. You know, well, now we, we don't have any of that. So I think there's the sort of extreme protests of you've taken away my liberty. And then I think there's the really daily lived experiences where we all feel like, who am I now? What, what is my role in this world if it's confined and or mediated by Zoom and phone at all times, pretty much? So, so I guess trying to create smaller timelines that feel significant might be a way for people to be able to feel less panicky that the long game is still vague because it's going to be for a while. It kind of always is. We just like to tell ourselves that it's not. We never really know what's coming, but we plan for it as if we know what's coming. And so this is in some ways an existential crisis for all of us in the world that what we think is certain is, is not as certain. That's a fantastic suggestion about creating new rituals to create a new timeline. I love that. Well, you know, there's some uh, work in the psychology, positive psychology literature that talks about benefit finding. And don't get me wrong, COVID-19, a global pandemic is terrible. I'm going to just put that on the table. But I think if we can try to find silver linings within the pandemic and within this change in structure to our lives and give it meaning in that way, like now I don't have to commute. You know, I can take a walk around my neighborhood in the morning. I've heard people talk about doing that. In fact, you know, I'm usually an early morning exerciser, and the, the number of people on the, the roads now has been remarkable. So the degree to which we can create those own new rituals and try to see this as opportunities for, for new things, um, I think that can also help reduce uncertainty and, and give us some joy back into our lives. Dr. Rains brought something up that I wanted to ask you more about, Dr. Gronwald. Dr. Rains called it psychological reactants. Was, uh -huh. that, was that the term? And then you brought up one exception to that was we all understand that you can't yell fire in a room. And while that is governmental policy, there are many aspects in our culture that they don't have to be laws or policies. They're kind of just socially supported as public health workers, what tactics do you think would be best to address social changes rather than relying on government policy? Do you think that there are things that public health workers can do to stimulate that change rather than pointing a finger, pointing a finger and saying you should be wearing a mask? You know, all those types of things that people are used to, to, to public health workers telling them. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's about the social contract and what we agree to do. That's what you're talking about, right? Like, I, I understand that, you know, if I'm coming to the end of the aisle in the grocery store, I don't just barrel out the end. I wait and I look carefully, sort of like I'm turning on a street. And most of that is behavior that we sort of observe as children growing up, and we don't have to be explicitly told those things. But I think this is a moment where maybe we do need a little bit more of an explicit conversation about what the social contract means and how that connects to taking care of ourselves and our community. So I think we're probably not going to get much success if we are shaming people. So we have to create some kind of incentive and, and it could just be a sort of a belonging incentive or an emotional incentive for 
wanting to wear the mask or for wanting to, like when I do have to go out to run errands, I'm even trying to not park as close to cars. And I, I've noticed that people are doing that a little bit more as well. I think part of where some of these protests might be coming from is people feeling kind of shamed for the needs that they have. You know, and I think when we acknowledge needs and validate needs and then say, hey, everybody has needs, it's about how we act on trying to fulfill those needs, but not shaming for the need itself. I think we need to get away from any kind of shaming language and really make it about community and make it about taking care of yourself too. I think you can make it about self-care as well. Oh, yeah, shaming I think will never work. It will always backfire. And in fact, it will probably drive them further toward that behavior and it'll lead them to just create, you know, we just create, now we have two groups, the group mm -hmm. who does and doesn't. The, the other thing I was thinking we could do is sort of, uh, we could serve as models. We can model what we think is good. By good, I mean um, the behavior we want to see. So we can model that in ourselves. And we can also find those who are modeling it and reward them for that. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't get a, a gift certificate or something like that, but simply, you know, letting them know they've done a good job. Or, you know, with a public health person, this is where they might actually be able to put something concrete in the works where you can, you can, sort of recruit people to serve as models. And so when you're in the grocery store, you enact social distancing and you make that a norm. And once other people see that behavior and see you being rewarded for it, that, that in theory at least, via social learning should encourage others to engage it. So by simply going to the store ourselves and maintaining social distance in the checkouts and doing those kinds of things, we are conveying what should happen. Yeah, I was going to say, I've definitely seen that, you know, walking around our neighborhood and my son, he's three and he'll see his, his, one of his favorite neighbors that he likes to play with, but he knows he's like, there's a virus. I have to stay over here and getting that message across to even kids and having them somewhat, you know, understand as much as they can. I'd like to move on to talking about technology and using technology in messaging. I know a new two-way texting system was created by a team of researchers from the University of Arizona Health Sciences and the University of Arizona Data Science Institute. And this system will help researchers understand the spread of the virus, but will also be a way to send resources where they are most needed. And the messages will help correct misinformation that is circulating in the popular media. Can you all discuss any tips for communicating health messaging using technology? Well, I'm on the tech, I'm on the, the AZ COVID text team. So I'm um, overseeing the messaging on that. I'm happy to talk about that if you want. It's, so in terms of how to develop messages for social media, that's a challenge there. I mean, I think we're using SMS, so we're limited to 160 characters, and it's really, really hard to get a accurate, yet also engaging message out in that kind of a way. And so what we try to do is break things down into, into very basic ideas. You know, rather than using it as a channel to communicate, that, that's certainly one way, and you can use social media is always the best, right? Because then you can reach a lot of people very quickly and easily through the uh, the reach by if you have a website or you have a Twitter feed for your uh, local public health agency or a Facebook page is always great, Instagram as well. But I think that what public health professionals actually could do would be to engage with social media and do it as a, a professional. So I can use social media as a way to get an understanding of the pulse of what's going on with this situation. 
I can figure out what my community needs by seeing what they're talking about on, on Twitter or on, on Facebook and other places. So crafting messages is one thing, but I, I think that social media serves a very important surveillance function in terms of understanding what the needs of the community are in ways that surveys just can't tell us. Well, and I think because of the way people communicate on social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, even Instagram, the way they're communicating about it is also an opportunity to see a perspective that might be different from the perspective you're hearing from family and friends. And so in terms of collecting data, I mean, we all know people are not shy about expressing anger and frustration on social media. And in fact, it's sort of turned into a vehicle for that in some ways. And so I think that data collection and then thinking about how to keep the information when we're pushing messages out, I think keeping that small and digestible. Yeah, I think these public, the public health professionals have a real opportunity to make a difference here because people want authoritative information and they have it. Mm -hmm. They are authoritative by the nature of their position. And so the degree to which they can capitalize on that and create you know, concise messages that get out key, factually accurate, medically accurate information, you know, they can make a, a large impact and have a great deal of value for their community. I definitely agree. And we've been talking for quite a while and I think we can keep going and we want to respect your time. Dr. Raines and Dr. Gronwald, where could our listeners find some of your efforts on social media if they want to follow them and, and be a part of what you are doing. If you Google AZ COVID text, you can find any information about that project and what's going on. You can get information. It is Arizona centric though, but our idea is that this could be something that could be adopted in other places and transformed for other communities. I would say following the Pima County Health Department, following the CDC. For me, Twitter is all about who you follow. Um, as much as, I mean, I don't actually post that much on Twitter, but I think there's a lot out there and it's a way to get, again, those digestible chunks of information. And, and then often that can point you um, toward another source if you want to do a little bit of a deeper dive. Excellent. Dr. Gronwald, Dr. Rains, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Well, thank you. It was a great thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much.